Everybody's talking about disruptive transportation technologies, and one name that comes up pretty much every time is Uber. The company and other on-demand ride-hailing services have changed how people get around, at least in urban areas. They've also affected the transportation ecosystem, bringing new opportunities and challenges. The pace of change hasn't always been easy for cities to adjust to, and more change is obviously ahead, particularly as autonomous vehicles enter the picture. It's all part of a revolution in transportation where the privately owned car is no longer the only ride in town. I'm Megan Stromberg, the Editor-in-Chief at the American Planning Association, and I'm talking today with Andrew Salzberg. You might be surprised to learn, as I was, that Uber has a team focused on how that company intersects with traditional transportation. Andrew heads that up. He's the head of transportation policy and research. He's also a planner. He has a master's degree in planning from the Harvard Graduate School of Design and held positions before that at the World Bank and a transportation consulting firm. Andrew, thanks for making the time to talk with us. Great to be here. What do you and your team do at Uber? So I work on a team called Policy Research, and we're in charge of thinking through some of the issues that Uber deals with around the world. So we're not tied to any specific geography, um, but we focus on, on sets of issues that cut across markets. And so the issues that I focus on are what we call transportation and mobility, and that's everything from infrastructure investment to working with public transport agencies to environmental impact. I think anything that you would think of as part of the normal basket of issues that a traditional transportation planner would think about at a city agency or elsewhere, that's the kind of things we're trying to think through within Uber. And how many planners are on that team? Actually, urban planners on my team, there are. I have a small team of three or four people right now. Um, none of them are, are trained in the urban planning field. We have some folks who come out of uh, an environmental background or who've worked in different policy environments. Uh, but there are many planners sort of scattered throughout the company in different roles, including myself. One of the areas of research uh, that ride-hailing companies like Uber are looking into, I imagine, is how Uber links up with public transportation. Is, is that something you're thinking about? Yeah, it's definitely something we're, we're very interested in. So my background before I came to Uber was, as you mentioned, working at the World Bank, and I worked primarily on public transportation investments. And before that, as a grad student, I worked at Transport for London. And sort of my whole life had been you know, primarily focused on the public transport sphere before I came to Uber. So it's something I've been thinking about personally for a long time, but we've been investing quite a bit of research into to how that's playing out on the ground as we speak. One of the most compelling examples that we have right now is, is from London. Um, so, you know, London has one of the best public transport systems in the world, as many people know. But until recently, tube service didn't run late at night. And one of the biggest markets for Uber uh, in London was late night service, both late at nights on weekdays, but also on the weekends. And so recently, in, in 2016, TFL launched the first ever night tube, sort of late night uh, rail transit service that they'd ever done. And there's a lot of discussion about what this would do to Uber's business, right? We're a very nighttime heavy business, so if there's an alternative, isn't that going to be bad for business? How, how are these two systems going to play together? And what we saw was really interesting, and I'm happy that we have a team of data scientists focused on policy to help understand this kind of question. But what we saw as soon as that service launched was that there was a big change in our trips week to week. And what happened was some of the pickups that we'd done in the center of London went down overall, but there was an enormous spike in pickups for Uber in the outer areas. So in other words, the people were taking the night tube from the core of London to outer areas and then hopping an Uber to complete that last mile or that last three or four miles. And so it was a really great sort of natural experiment that happened where week over week, our trips changed substantially, but we actually gained trips overall and gained an enormous amount of trips that happened in the suburbs, as well as obviously uh, new public transport riders were added to a brand new 
great example for me of how both Uber and public transport can work together to kind of mutually gain benefit when something new happens, but also that there are changes in both systems. So there's an overall gain and a modification of what each part of that system is doing. That's one really compelling example we saw happen in real time, but there are others around the world. And that I think you can call the sort of organic effect of what's happening between Uber and transit on the ground. There's a whole other bucket that we're getting into, which is if we want to sit down and formally partner with an agency, what can we do? And that, I think, over the last 18 months to two years, you started to see more and more work um, from our side, working alongside transit agencies in the U.S. and elsewhere, to partner up and actually complete you know, new types of service. So I can pick up a few examples of that from across the country. Uh, we have you know, a partnership, for instance, uh, in Summit, New Jersey, where there's a town government that was contemplating adding a new park-and-ride lot to service the New Jersey transit line that goes through town, but that was an unappealing option for a lot of reasons that your listeners will know, right? Building a new parking lot is expensive. It may not be a great use of downtown land. And so they were thinking through alternatives. And where we landed with them was, well, can Uber provide discounted service for people within Summit, New Jersey, to get to and from a train station as an alternative to new parking infrastructure? And so we've launched a pilot in 2016 to do exactly that. We're excited about scaling that kind of a, a option to other cities around the country. So how do you um, offer that? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do you offer the discount? Do they subsidize the fee? Yeah. In that, the transit agencies subsidize your fee? Yeah. In this case, the city is, is chipping in a small amount of money per trip for riders who start and end their trip within their jurisdiction, hmm. essentially for people who are going to or from the train station from within the town of Summit. Hmm. And there are other models that kind of build on that as well. We have, um, you know, one of the big things in public transport is uh, paratransit. Right, providing rides to people for whatever reason who can't use traditional public transportation, which is something that uh, every agency is committed to doing, but that can be very costly, and sometimes the service can be relatively um, difficult for users to use. And so we've had lots of, of agencies come to us and say, hey, can we possibly use Uber as part of our suite of options to help serve the paratransit demand? And we now have, as of last year, a pilot with the MBTA in Boston to look at using Uber as part of the offering to paratransit riders. And what we're seeing is great demand for that service and many people using it, you know, potentially at lower cost per ride and maybe at a quicker response time. So I think there's a lot of areas where we work together. There's a lot of win-wins that are possible between traditional public transportation providers um, and new mobility services like Uber. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the built environment. There isn't really a designated place for pickups and drop-offs right now because it just wasn't foreseen. And so a lot of that is happening in the street um, how can we match up existing streets and streetscapes with on-demand transportation? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to, to kind of plan for a future that arrived sort of organically and wasn't there when people laid out the streets that might have been laid out, you know, 100 years ago or even you know, even 10 years ago. There was no kind of conception of what it might look like to have wide adoption of shared mobility. So I think on the plus side, I know we're going to talk about this, but, you know, a huge amount of our street space today is taken up by parking. And there's a lot of competing modes that would love to use that space, right? The obvious example are our bike lanes or wider sidewalks for pedestrians, uh, street trees, right? There's a whole host of uses that I think, you know, in, in an ideal world would be ranked ahead of, of parking cars. So I think what shared mobility provides at one level is the ability to hopefully, as we switch people from driving their own car um, and parking their own car on the street or elsewhere, shifting into getting the back of someone else's car um, by themselves or with somebody else, we can lower the demand for parking and hopefully repurpose some of that street. So I think, as you point out, as we start to do that, is there a way to provide, you know, designated pickup spots for shared mobility, uh, rideshare services like Uber? I think that's something we're looking at and thinking through. 
Um, I think there are some places we started to do that that's going to pick up points at places of really high demand, whether that's airports or concert venues or big transportation providers. We have examples of sort of directing riders to specific spots to make it an easier experience for riders and for drivers. I think as we start to get bigger um, in cities and towns across the U.S., there's scope to think through what the ideal streetscape looks like to make that pick up and drop off easy, uh, to make it convenient for cyclists as well as for people getting in and out of cars, uh, to make it convenient for pedestrians. But I think I'm bullish, and I think we're bullish as a company in the long term, that we can generally use space more effectively. Right? Moving away from parking is one, but the other obvious one is putting more people into fewer cars. If you use services like Uber Pool, right, you're getting two or three or even four people matched up into one car. That means that you know, as well as less parking, you might need less road space to actually move those vehicles. And if you need less road space for that, then maybe you can take some of that lane space for things that people have been looking for for a long time, whether it's cycle lanes um, or other really, really important uses for street space. So I think if our goal as a company is to use resources more effectively, we've thought about that in the vehicle for now. But I think as you start to zoom out and think longer term, you can think about using the road space we have in cities more effectively and opening up space for new use cases and, and things that have long been desired in cities but have been hard, um, both for political reasons and also just for you know fundamental reasons of space to get done. How long has Uber been around as a company? Uh, six plus years. So six. not a long time by planning standards. Yeah, it's the blink of an eye by planning standards. Um, but the infrastructure and the rest of the built environment takes years and sometimes decades to build. So how might planners deal with that time frame mismatch? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think it's one reason that I have a lot of sympathy for the hard job that planners are doing. I think it's always a difficult job to predict the future, but I think if you're looking at Transportation in the U.S. over the last, you know, five, ten years is one of the times we've seen more rapid change, I think, in transportation than we've been used to over the decades before that. So it certainly puts increasing pressure on people who are trying to predict these long time frames, um, building and setting the guidelines for a built environment that lasts, you know, decades at minimum. So, you know, I, I think how do we square those two? I think it's a hard question. I think we're seeing exciting things, I think, um, that are allowing cities to have a bit more flexibility. I think one thing that there's a movement happening that obviously predates Uber, but I think we can help accelerate that, is to move away from restrictive standards on things like parking. Right? I think one thing to say, if you're not quite sure what the future looks like, I think having very restrictive standards on what developers can do, it, it puts you in a tough spot, particularly on things like parking, where there are very prescriptive minimums for you know XYZ spaces per 1,000 square feet of you know, certain land use. Um, I think those were based on data that you know we could always have debated, but certainly in a future with more shared mobility, more potentially autonomous vehicles, we're going to need less parking, I think, different varieties of it. So at the very least, you know, taking away some of the restrictions that force behavior that we weren't sure about, I think, is a, is a good strategy. We're seeing developers in, in different places. I saw one in Denver recently, you know, embrace the idea of, okay, we're going to build a certain amount of parking because you might need it today, or we're going to build it in a way that can be converted to other uses over time. I think that approach of, of building in flexibility inherently into the built environment is not always possible to do. But on issues like parking, I think there's an opportunity to take something now that sets you up for success no matter what the future holds down the road. So I think that helping people think through that, and I will admit that we're, we're early days as a company is sort of um, speaking to that community that's doing the long-range planning. I think the product that, that I'd love to talk about uh, called Uber Movement that we launched recently is an opportunity for us to have that conversation. Right? I think if you think through you know, one of the challenges that transportation planners have always had is data input to understand the environment we have today so that as you forecast new infrastructure investments or land use changes, you can get an idea of what effect that will have on the city. But as we talked with metropolitan planning organizations across the country, 
you realize that even if the real hard challenge is the 20 or 30 year forecast, sometimes they are having trouble getting data that's up to date today. Right? So even just getting, for instance, travel times across the city that's regularly updated and available and at an affordable rate is tough to do. So with movement, we're releasing a product for free to the public that has travel times built into it in a way that's directly usable by metropolitan planning organizations as part of the long-range travel demand modeling process to sort of help think through what the built environment looks like. That doesn't mean there's an answer provided there, but I think the more that we can help provide tools for people to understand changes and to plan for the long term, then we can be a productive part of the conversation of what the long-term future of the city looks like. You, of course, collect a lot of data, and the movement um, project, you know, as you said, allows that to be more available. Um, but is it available in the right format that transportation and land use planners need? It seems like it's a little bit high level um, in terms of what kind of data is offered. Conceivably, Uber has it in a much finer grain. So, yeah, so I think, I think the, the, the short answer is that there's a lot of conversations about you know, the data that Uber has, and I think it's important to break out the idea that there's lots of different ways to approach the question of data. And I don't think there's going to be one tool or one product that would satisfy every possible use case. And I think we've been clear with movement that we are starting out uh, with a specific use case that I'll talk about, but in the long run, I think there are other ones that are out there that we can meet. And so to your question about is it in a format that planners can use, and I would say yes. And the, and the traditional um, way that that's done, and the core use case that we built for was metropolitan planning organizations. And we did that you know, sitting alongside people in those agencies to understand their process. And so what we've done is we're providing travel times between zones in the city, but they're not zones that we made up. They're zones that we're using that are from the methodology that people already use in those organizations. So we're using traffic analysis zones, which I'm sure a lot of your readers and listeners are, are familiar with. And that's how we're sharing the data. So if you download and export the data for movement, you will get it already displayed in the TAZs of the area that you're working on. Right? That's a pretty mundane point, but I think it's important to say that this entire product was designed specifically with the end user in mind to make it valuable for that process. That was the kind of core we set out to solve. But what we saw over time is that if you make that product uh, publicly available, and so not just for government agencies, but for everybody um, beyond that, and that's the goal here, is we're slowly rolling it out to a broader and broader list of people, you start to come up with new use cases, right? So we have something now that's not just a slice in time where you might get average travel times, but we're providing them by hour of day, by day of week, and we're doing that for an entire year and ultimately going forward. And what that lets you do is to sort of see the impact of projects as they're deployed, right? If you have a new light rail line in your city, you can see the immediate impact um, shortly thereafter in the data to see, okay, what happened to the adjacent roadway? If you have a new toll that goes in, if you have, as in the case of D.C., a metro system that's shut down for a day or part of it for a day, you can see the dramatic impact that has on the roadways. I think that gets a really useful piece of data out there in the public mind to measure the economic impact of different changes, whether they're positive or negative changes, to sort of see a data-driven approach to measuring that. And so, you know, broadly speaking, with the Travel Times data set that was the first piece of movement, the core audience was metropolitan planning organizations, you know, regional planners who ultimately are in charge of spending federal dollars on transportation infrastructure, but as we've built for that, we've seen a lot of broad applicability of that data set. And so we're rolling it out to more people and kind of excited to see what people choose to do with it, even as over the long term, I think we're thinking through what's the next data set, what's the third data set we can kind of share in the same format that has tremendous public value, but also protects the individual rider and driver privacy of our users. So you're describing a real iterative process 
Uh, yeah, I think that's data. We, you know we, we don't just have a, a one-time data dump, right? We have a, a genuine product team, uh, you know, a significant number of engineers and designers and product people who are doing nothing but building movement. I think that's been exciting to watch as a company, sort of dedicating resources to that effort and having them genuinely go and sit with public agency users, not just in the U.S. but around the world, to understand their challenges and how we can build products that will change over time. And I'm confident that this will change over time, right? I'm sure that as we get more users using it, there will be you know, uh, new ways to download the data that are requested, uh, new visualizations, new functions that we don't have now. And that, that I think, is going to be positive to make this a better thing over time. Um, and so we've used that, obviously, that experience of iterating on a product for the retail side of the business, the sort of core, uh, you know, delivering rides part of the business. So I think it's exciting to use that for a public use case for people outside the company for data, which we haven't done, you know, until the advent of movement. Uh, you talked about uh, changes over time, and one of the biggest changes that we're all wondering about is autonomous vehicles and what what role th- they will have on the well on everything, um, but on ride ride sharing and ride hailing companies uh, in particular. Uh, there's already already been a few experiments with that. Where do you see? How do you see it changing the landscape? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I don't think you know I can pretend to answer how this is going to play out. But I think there are many people out there who, who've done a good job of laying out some of the key decisions we have to make communally. And I think Robin Chase, who's the founder of Zipcar, has often used this framing of autonomous vehicles can either be great things for cities or they can be terrible things for cities, right? And she calls it heaven or hell. And the key distinction in her mind, I think, is a good one: is is everyone going to own their own autonomous vehicle, or are we going to rely on a shared fleet of autonomous vehicles? both shared in the sense of one car does trips for many people, but also that we might share them on an individual trip as we do with, with Uberpool. And so obviously I'm biased because I work at a company that's in the business of sharing rides, but I think if you think through the consequences for cities, if we can get people out of the mindset of having to use their own personal car, I think there are going to be enormous benefits, right? I think if we, if we just replace the system we have where everyone owns their own car and the vast majority of, of trips in the country are driven by people in their own vehicle, with autonomous vehicles, there are likely to be some benefits, but I think some enormous consequences, right? The, the, the potential opening up of vast new numbers of empty mileage, uh, the continued need for parking, I think might have detrimental effects. But you if you get empty, to a fleet... I'm sorry, yeah, when you say yeah. empty mileage, do you mean uh, empty cars with no humans whatsoever just sort of driving around? Right, you might, right, you might dispatch your own car to go pick something up or, or park in a parking lot somewhere um, to wait for you. I think there's been conversations about people sort of being in one city and summoning their car to pick them up. I think the key thing there is if we can break the idea of you have your car and move to you can get in the back of any car, I think we start to see really, really strong benefits. Um, I think that's what we're seeing already with ride-sharing and with Uber, and one of the reasons I'm excited to be here is that you know, we as a company launched Uber Pool, which is our you know, shared ride service where we're matching two independent rider or groups of riders together. We launched that two years before we did our first you know, autonomous vehicle pilot. I think that's the hierarchy that I think we need to get to in terms of priorities for cities if you want to do this right. I think sharing has to be at the core of how self-driving technology is rolled out, um, and there are not that many players who are advanced in both delivering rides, sharing rides in real time, and also developing self-driving technology. And so I think that's why it's kind of a unique spot to be in for Uber as self-driving comes in. How do we ensure that we do this in a way that provides benefits to cities, that encourages sharing, um, that uses infrastructure more effectively, uses road space more effectively, and opens up all the benefits that we've been talking about for kind of the future of cities and moving away from a world dominated by car ownership. If you 
could give a piece of advice to planners who are looking forward to preparing for these changes, um, what would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I think I've talked a bit about, you know, A, it's a hard job. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to the challenges of thinking through. I think these, these changes are happening uh, very frequently, um, and it's tough to understand the kind of nuances of the different technologies coming out and, and what the deployment will be and how fast that will happen. So I think one thing is just to focus on the things that are eternally true, right? I work at a tech company, so it's hard for me to say, but, you know, ignore some of the technology. I think if you look at the challenges of urban transportation, a lot of them haven't changed, right? It's how do we use road space more effectively to move more passengers per mile. It's how do we ensure that the systems we develop are, you know, environmentally friendly, are socially equitable. I think those are the kind of things that stay true no matter what the technology is. And so I think if you if you focus on that and don't get caught up in the specifics of this or that technology and how it's deployed, you're in better shape. So I think things like, for instance, road pricing or congestion pricing that encourage more efficient use of infrastructure in cities, that's a good idea now. I think it's just as good, if not a better idea, in the future of uh, autonomous vehicles. Right. So I think if it's possible, and it's not always easy to do, you know, individual technologies come and go, but the core issues that transportation planners or urban planners work on stay the same. And so how do we find those common threads that work through given technologies? And I think things like efficiency, environmental effectiveness, I think I think those sort of externalities, the long-running themes of what we're working on will not change. If you pick up a textbook from 30 years ago and you read through kind of the urban transportation problems then, they're very similar to what we have now. I think that's an important thing to think through. Even as technology changes, the problems and the ideal solutions stay the same. And there's something comforting in that, even as we're sort of dealing with a whirlwind of change. Well, Andrew, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Sure, it was great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Andrew Salzberg is the head of transportation policy and research at Uber. There's plenty more about the latest in transportation and planning in the April 2017 issue of Planning Magazine. Look for it in print or on the web at planning.org. For more on how the sharing scene is changing the rules of the road, check out APA's PAS report, Planning for Shared Mobility, which is free to all APA members. You'll find that, too, at planning.org.